Amen. What a sweet spirit in this place, isn't there? Isn't it good to be a part of a church that believes the gospel and that boldly proclaims the blood of Christ as the substitutionary atonement that paid the price for our sins to claim that, thank you, that God has made a way for us to be right with himself both now and forever to boldly sing those words and to claim them as truth and as our own. I'm so grateful for a church that, that believes those things, that sings those things, and that uh, as a body of Christ together can proclaim those things in unity and in love. Thank you, Aaron and team, for leading us this morning in that way. I'm so grateful to be back. I told Morgan I feel like I've been gone for weeks. It was only one Sunday, but I feel like we crammed so much into that week that it felt like two or three weeks. But uh, Morgan has been gone for three weeks because we had a sick kid two weeks ago. But uh, it's great to be back with you. I'm so grateful for Ray Ortland bringing such a, a wonderful word last week. I got to watch it thanks to our streaming services and our video team who you don't see, but uh, we appreciate them every week and the work that they do uh, down in the, in the dungeon. Uh, Valerie and Jeff and, and Shelby and Andy and everyone else who helps with that. Thank you so much. But uh, Ray was just so brilliant, but he's so humble and approachable and pastoral and warm. And I'm so grateful for him being with us to share. And uh, I hate to follow his, uh, his uh, sermon with, with mine, but uh, again, he was talking about this section of, of Isaiah at the end of Isaiah being about revival. And if that's not something that you pray for, I, I, I would encourage you to pray for revival. Pray for a fresh wind, a fresh fire of God's spirit to fall. And may it begin with us at Woodmont Baptist Church. And may it spread. May it be something that we witness and that we can be a part of as we're caught up in revival. And what we see in this end section of Isaiah is a picture of God's revival, of God's spirit bringing this new life into the world. And I'm, I'm going to continue on this theme of flourishing as, as we see how God's faithful to bring heaven to earth and bring about revival as we flourish according to God's ways. <clears throat> Let me start by saying that Jude, I asked him if it was okay to say this. He said it was okay to say this, but our oldest son, how many of you are firstborn children? You got any firstborns? A lot of you firstborns. I think this is true of firstborn children. My mom's really into birth order stuff, you know, uh, kind of like Enneagram stuff, but uh, I think firstborn children have this innate sense of right and wrong and, and justice, right? And they get really upset whenever someone cheats or when someone breaks the rules, you know? Uh, Jude's always been that way. And it comes out when he watches movies. When he gets caught up in a movie, he gets so concerned when the tables are turning and the odds are stacked against the hero and he gets panicked. He used to, not so much anymore, but he used to get really panicked and we'd have to reassure him and say, hey, hey Jude, it's gonna be okay. I promise the hero is gonna win in the end. I promise it's gonna be okay. Sometimes, you know, even May would say, Jude, that's the main character, they're not gonna die. I promise they're gonna, they're gonna be okay. And that's, of course, how it would work out. You could rest assured that in all the movies that we let him watch as a child, that the good guys were gonna win. That somehow, even when it looked like all the odds were against him, that in the end, the hero would win the day. But that, that's movies, right? That's not, that's not how it works 
in, in the real world, right? We know that we have several amazing, wonderful people that we've had to say goodbye to far too early as, as they've transitioned from this life to the next. And in our limited understanding, in our, our limited human perspective, it's far too soon. And we grieve and we, we miss them. That's, that's part of life in this fallen world. Injustice is rampant. The bad guys win all the time, don't they? They say nice guys, what, finish last. Unlike the movies, relationships are hard. Relationships take work. Marriage is hard, it takes work. The divisions, again, in our country and in our, our world are, are deep. You hear about these bombings in Afghanistan. You hear about the rebuilding efforts in Haiti and other places. There are many systemic problems with government at, at all levels of government, with schools, with the environment, with the economy, our healthcare system, the vulnerable and the, the powerless, the, the marginalized uh, among us, the disabled, the poor, children, immigrants, often get taken advantage of by the powerful. I'm not trying to bum you out, okay, to start on a, a downer here, but I think we need to be honest with ourselves today. It seems there are only two valid options for logical, reasonable people in how we respond to the overwhelming problems of this world. Either one, we, we give in to the, the cynical argument that nothing's ever gonna get better, it's just gonna grow increasingly worse, and, and therefore we become bitter and jaded that's one option, or the other option is to choose hope. The other option is to, to choose that, that something can fix this, that, that something can make things right. We can put our trust in something that we believe will make things better and provide a solution. Now, there are plenty of voices out there that are competing for our hope, competing for our trust, that are asking us to put our trust in them. Just about every politician seems to want to convince us that they have the answers, or at least that their party has the answers. Big companies try to separate us from our money by convincing us that if we will simply buy what they're selling, it will make things better. Technology provides an endless distraction amusement, right, without thinking, amusement, that, that we don't even have to, to think about this fallen world. We can distract ourselves, amuse ourselves to ignorance. I saw an article in the Tennessean this week, really interesting, about a country music star who really became famous on social media. He has over five million followers on TikTok. I don't know all you people over 50 may not know what TikTok is, but it's a thing, it's a social media thing. And he and his girlfriend constantly post pictures about their lives together on TikTok for their 5.1 million followers. And when asked by the Tennessean reporter if it was strange to have all these random people watching them and their lives, the artist replied, you know, there's times when I don't know if weird is the right word, but it feels like just a lot of people know about our lives more and more. I try not to think about it that much. <laughs> I, I try not to think about it. Just, 
amuse myself. Today, I want us to think about our lives, to be intentional, to be thoughtful about our lives. Have you chosen cynicism? That's a temptation in my life all the time. Just be cynical, just be jaded. Or have you put your hope in something like politics or money or success or power or popularity in order to make things better and deliver us from the problem. As Christians, our hope is clearly communicated to us in this book that we call the Bible, and it's a, a very real picture. It's a brick and mortar picture of what our hope ultimately is, of where we put our trust it's a hope that's dependent not on us, but on an all-powerful, all-good, all-wise, supreme and sovereign God who has a plan to make, as Lord of the Rings says, Evan, everything sad come what? Untrue. You guys know it. To make everything sad come untrue. That plan centers on the work of Jesus Christ, and that plan results in a very specific vision of flourishing for the world, for the cosmos. This is God's plan to make all things new. But we can rest assured, though, that this plan isn't going to come to full, complete fruition in this life, but in the next, in the age to come. It, it may be in this life, for those of us who are still here, when the Lord returns, but that vision is not ultimately going to happen until that day when Christ returns. But we rest assured knowing that it will be complete one day, a day when all things will be transformed and made new again, a day when our Lord Jesus will reign supreme where'er the, 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 the sun and the moon shall go. I love that old hymn, Jesus shall reign. That's the truth. We see this in Scripture clearly in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. In, in Daniel chapter 7, we read this prophetic vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, whose reign shall be forever. That's where all this is heading. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says that God has already highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that one day in the future, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So much of Isaiah has been reassuring us that all of this is going somewhere and that somewhere is good, and we can rest assured in that it's going to be good. So today we're gonna to get a glimpse of how all this works out. 
We're gonna be reminded of how the story ends and we'll decide whether or not that's the vision of flourishing that we're holding on to, whether that's the vision that we're betting our lives on. The outline for today, if you didn't get an outline, we're doing something new in October. If you want one, I bet you Aaron could grab some real quick. If you got children in your lap, I bet Trevor could do it. Oh, never mind. Aaron, and then maybe Schlamps in the back, maybe Todd, if you could grab some of those outlines. If you want one and you want to follow along and fill in the blanks, kind of interactive thing to keep you focused, uh, just raise your hand and Aaron or, or Todd can uh, bring you uh, an outline for today. The outline is called God's Glorious Future. God's glorious future, which just so happens for the people of God, is our future as well. It's not our future primarily, it's God's future, but if you are in Christ and part of the family of God, then it is our future as well. We're gonna see how in the last part of Isaiah 59 and how in Isaiah chapter 60, that they're, they're really broken down into three kind of main sections. We're gonna see the problem in Isaiah 59 and then at the end of 59, we're gonna see the solution, God's solution to the problem and then in chapter 60, this glorious picture of the outcome of no pressure. If, you don't, if you're not a note taker, don't, don't, you don't need to take one. I just, you know, if it helps you take one, if not, don't worry about it. Those are available at the Welcome Centers when you come in now every Sunday morning. Uh, at least for a few weeks, we're going to have outlines available. If it helps you, great. If not, just leave it. So what we're going to see is the, the problem first in Isaiah 59. And guys, we have to be honest. We can't pretend like everything is fine when it's not fine. And the Bible helps pull back the curtain on reality and show us there is a problem. Let's read uh, chapter 59, verses 14, and the first part of 15. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. Does that sound familiar? And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. To stand up against evil makes you a, a, a victim if you stand against evil. What we see here is that the core problem with God's people is that they've turned their backs on God. That's the first blank in your outline. They've turned their backs on God. We talked on Wednesday night, this past Wednesday at midweek, about Esau and how he turned his back on God by, by forfeiting his birthright for a cup of soup. That he, there's this subtle deception in all of our lives to kind of ignore God, to pretend as if God didn't really exist. Our faith then tends to be this kind of intellectual thing that we talk about, but it has no real consequences in our heart. It's an inconsequential faith that doesn't really affect things. We tend to live like functional atheists. Our faith becomes a benign set of doctrines and rules that we sort of ascribe to, but our hearts aren't really feeling it. The world can, can grind us down to where we become unspiritual people because we're just trying to survive each day. And then we're filled with these worldly concerns and we're empty of the fruits of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control that are ours through the Spirit in us. When we stand far away from the Lord, 
It says here that righteousness stands far away from us. It says when we turn our backs on the Lord that justice turns its back on us. That kind of justice that deep down we really long for and we crave, we forfeit by turning our backs on the Lord. And we have no sense then of what is truly right and good and true. What is right and good and true? When we are far from righteousness, we have this deep problem in our hearts and we can't fix it. We could assemble a brilliant think tank. We have so many gifted people here with more degrees than you know, could fit on my wall. <laughs> we, we could assign a gifted project manager. You wouldn't believe some of these project managers we have in our church, they're so gifted. We could raise funds. You guys are amazing at raising funds. This last 12 months, we've given over $180,000 to missions. I'm going to uh, have a, a handout next week that shows where all that money has gone. It's amazing for a church of our size, the way that you can generate funds when they're needed so quickly. We could form alliances with other churches. We could form alliances with other countries. We still couldn't fix it. The problem is deeply ingrained in our hearts and no heart surgeon, we have some of those too, heart surgeons can't repair what's wrong. I heard that Jon Stewart, the, the TV host, is back with a new TV show called The Problem. And, and on that show, he invites guests on and they discuss kind of big world issues and they talk about how they might uh, attack those issues and solve them. That's cool, I think that's great. I mean, it's great to attack world problems, right? But at the end of the day, we know that the fundamental core problem is not going to be able to be fixed by any amount of talk show hosts and experts and media people. That the foundational problem of our world is that it is deeply, deeply sick with something called sin. It's infected with the deadly terminal disease of sin. And we can't fix sin. We can't save ourselves from it. Only God can forge a way out of the mess that we find ourselves in. And he delights in fixing it. God's not indifferent to injustice. It makes him furious. He's bewildered by injustice in our world. And look at the rest of chapter, 50, of chapter 59, verse 15, B to 16. The Lord saw the injustice and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. That's the key. God himself can do it. Only God can, and he does it. That's the second blank. No one could deal with the problem, so God did. So God did. I love this image of God getting up and getting dressed for battle against sin and against injustice in verses 17 to 19. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he, will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. 
God is getting ready for battle. He's getting dressed for this, this battle. He's going to bring justice. And here's the thing, guys. For Christians, justice is not something that we should fear. It may sound like God's getting ready to attack us, but he's going to attack sin and injustice. We should long for God's justice because God's justice means making things right. God's justice means setting things right and making, making all the things that are wrong correct. It means fixing things. We should pray for God's justice. Yes, God's pictured here as a mighty warrior coming to attack injustice, but remember the gospel, the plan of God to make things right is subversive and surprising. How will he bring justice and salvation to the world through an incredibly unique solution. That's the second point, the solution. Look at verse 20. The solution involves a redeemer who will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This is how God's going to bring justice, through a redeemer. God's coming to, to bring justice, and it's not just about bringing the bad guys down. He's dealing with the core problem, which is the propensity of the human heart to choose other things than God. The propensity of the human heart to sin and to choose our way over God's way. In that middle section of Isaiah, we saw four uh, so-called servant songs about an anointed Messiah whom God would send to rescue his people and to redeem them from their sins. By his wounds, we will be healed. So this word redeem in, in chapter uh, 59 verse 20 isn't about using coupons at the grocery store. It's not about the redemption center at the Brentwood Skate Center. How many of you have been to the Brentwood Skate Center? I know a lot of our children have. There, that hasn't changed at all since I was a kid. But this is not what this is talking about. In the Old Testament, a redeemer was specifically a relative, one of the uh, family uh, relation, who according to the laws of the Torah and the Pentateuch, would step in to act on behalf of a family member who is in trouble or who is in need. Remember Boaz in the book of Ruth, when, when she was widowed and penniless and had no future prospects, he stepped in. He was a relative of Naomi's, her mother-in-law, and he stepped in and took Ruth in to be his wife. And they ended up having a, a, a grandson named uh, David who would be become king. It's a beautiful forerunner for what Jesus would come to do, to rescue us from the sinking boat of sin that we all found ourselves in. It's important to note that this redemption comes to a certain group. In verse 20, it says, to the ones turning from transgression in Jacob. That's repentance language, isn't it? Oh, I love repentance. I love it. It's this beautiful doctrine of, of recognizing. It's like the guy who's driving around. I know where I'm going. I'm fine. I don't need the GPS. I don't need the directions. Don't tell me I'm lost. I'm not asking for directions. And meanwhile, they're getting more and more lost. That's how we tend to do going the way we want to go in our lives. And repentance means admitting that I'm wrong, that I'm lost, turning back to what is good, to what is true, 
to the Lord himself and moving back towards the Lord. That's the language of repentance here. It's a beautiful thing. John Oswald, he may be related to you guys, in his commentary says that God's essence is love and that he's endlessly compassionate. But then he says, as this verse shows, there is a fundamental condition for experiencing that compassion, turning away from continued rebellion. God's grace, he says, is inherent in his character. Nothing human can prompt it or create it, but one thing can block its flow, an unrepentant spirit. Are you blocking the flow of God's grace in your life today? Let's repent. Isaiah really wants to make it clear how this redemption comes to us. So he switches, you might notice in your Bible, from poetry to prose for verse 21. It's like a footnote. He's trying to clarify what he's hearing from the Lord. It's the key verse to this whole passage. He says, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, who is God talking to in this verse? He starts out saying, yes, my covenant, my faithful promise of salvation is with them. He's talking about the covenant people of God. He's talking about the people who turn to him. He's not talking to them though, he's talking about them. And then he says, my spirit is upon you and my words are in your mouth. Who is he talking to? I love how Ray Ortland again says it, he says we're overhearing a conversation. Isaiah gets a glimpse of an inter-Trinitarian conversation between the Father and the Son. And the Father's telling the Son, look, I've got this plan to make all things new and all the covenants that I made with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and David, they're all gonna come to a fulfillment, a conclusion in a new covenant. And you, my Son, are gonna be the mediator of this new covenant. That's the third blank there. The solution to our world of injustice and falsehood and sin is the mediator of a new covenant. Our Lord and Savior, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the glorious outcome of the new covenant. We're gonna fly through chapter 60. We see in chap chapter 60 the beautiful results of what happens when the Messiah comes to usher in a new age. This, this whole chapter has this tension though that we in the theological world call the now but not yet. The now but not yet promises of the new covenant. Yes, everything has changed for those of us who get to live on this side of the cross and on this side of the empty tomb. Everything's changed for us. We have new life in Christ now. We've been raised to a whole new life, but we still live in a, a fallen world where cancer still exists. We still wrestle with an ancient enemy, Satan, and his weapons of temptation and ultimately death. But we know by faith that Christ is 
coming again. That was our lesson in Sunday morning life group today. Christ is coming again. And he's going to finish making all things new once and for all. So look at chapter 60, our glorious hope. Verses 1 to 3, God now addresses the city of Zion. He uses the city of Zion as a metaphor for his people, the dwelling place of his people. He says, arise and shine, for your light has come. Youth choir, was that, Lauren, was that youth choir that we sang that song all the time? Arise and shine, your light has come. Yeah, I can't get that out of my head still. It's, it's amazing how those songs stick with you. Lauren was the accompanist for my youth choir, uh, you know, five years ago when I was in the youth group. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you in his glory. Remember the promise from Isaiah 40, that the glory of the Lord would be revealed. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 2 talks about that darkness. You know, there's so much confusion. I find myself watching cars drive by on Hillsborough Road and just praying for the individuals in each car and wondering how many of them are lost, how many of them are stumbling in the dark, how many of them are searching for some truth and something life-giving and good, and just praying for these people because there's so many people around us who walk in darkness, who are confused. But when the Lord comes to us, everything changes. We're enlightened. The people of God become light bearers in a dark world. All throughout the Bible, we hear this promise from God that he's going to come to be with us personally, bodily be with us. Leviticus, way back in the Pentateuch, Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, God says, I will make my dwelling among you. That's John uh, 1.14 language, isn't it? That Jesus would move into our neighborhood, that God would come to dwell among us. And my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. That promise is echoed all throughout the prophets and into the messianic age. So that first blank in, in, in the third section of your notes is that the Lord is in the city. The Lord is present in the city. He's with his people in a very real and powerful way. That leads to the next section, verses 4 to 9. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you, Zion. He's talking to the city of, of God's people. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian, Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. What does that remind you of? Jesus. And shall bring good news, gospel, the praises of the Lord. Foreigners praising the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. Pagans offering sacrifices that are accepted by God and will beautify his beautiful house, the temple of the Lord. 
Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish. That's where Paul was from, right? The furthest you could go. To bring your children from afar. Their silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God. That's the point. And for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. So who's in the city now? First, God is in the city, but now the world is in the city. The, the, the beacon of light that God's people become, a, a beautiful city on a hill, attracts the world to them. Zion becomes what Israel was supposed to be all along, a conduit of God's blessing to the whole world, to all the nations of the world. And one day, we, the church, will perfectly fulfill that role as we gather alongside of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue around the throne in the new Jerusalem, now but not yet. Verses 10 to 14. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, not Lebanon, Lebanon, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So now what do we see in the city? This is a city for all the nations. A city for all the nations. The people of God are no longer this prophetic minority that are stepped on and oppressed and afflicted, but they become the culture leaders of the world. The nations that don't come to Zion and join God's family find themselves cut off from God's life-giving grace. Finally, in verses 17 to 18, we see an amazing program of urban renewal this one doesn't involve a new stadium. It doesn't involve a new uh, monument. This is the best urban renewal program you've ever seen. It says in verse 17, instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. Instead of iron, I'll bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I'll make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praised. The last blank on your outline is a transformed city. It's a transformed city, totally made new, made perfect, and made safe because the Lord himself will oversee it and will do it and be in it with us. And here's the cool part. This transformation isn't just about the city, it's about the people in the city too. Look at the last two verses, verses 21 and 22. Skip to 21 there. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting. 
the work of my hands that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. God will change us from the inside out. He says that we're going to possess what he has brought about, namely his righteousness, his perfection, which becomes ours through Jesus Christ. What does all this mean for us today? This vision of redemption, of God's plan to fix what only he can fix, should compel our hearts towards a greater faith, should compel us to believe in a way that changes everything. And, and that faith should lead to works as we carry out God's plan as the people of God. I love what the Bible says about Abraham in Romans chapter four, verses 20 to 22. It says of Abraham that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Those two things are connected, our faith and God's glory. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness and God got all the glory. Maybe you're wavering today. Maybe your faith is just so small. The Bible says that faith, even as small as a mustard seed, can, can be a place where God's creation can flourish. Maybe you haven't had that experience of a fresh wind of God's movement in your life in a long time. The, the answer is to repent and grow strong in our faith like Abraham did, giving glory to God and being convinced that God can do what he says he can do, that God will do what he says he will do. All the promises of God are yes and amen through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you believe that today? Let's pray. God, forgive us for turning our backs on you. Forgive us for living as, as though you don't really exist. God, forgive us for letting the world dictate uh, who we are. Our zip code becomes more indicative of how we live than the Bible does. Lord, we want to be shaped by your word and by your spirit, which you have given to us in Jesus Christ. God, we want to become more like Jesus in order to flourish in this life and in the age to come. God, we know that that's only possible by your grace. And we receive it afresh in our hearts today. May that grace bear such fruit in us that we are transformed, just like the, the city of God will be transformed one day into a beautiful creation that's not just beautiful so that we can enjoy it, but so that all the nations will come and find life. God, we want to be a part of your redemptive solution to the fundamental problem in our world, the propensity of human hearts to sin. Lord, may it start with me, may it start with each one of us here today, everyone who's watching at home. God, I pray that we would be so repentant 
and so filled with your grace as we empty ourselves of the things of this world and all the worries and anxieties and sins that so easily entangle us as we throw that off and run the race set before us with perseverance, with our eyes firmly fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, we thank you for this vision that you've given us, this hope that we can firmly hold on to. I pray that as we bet everything on that hope, God, you would transform us into the people you desire us to be, a city on a hill, a beacon of light and hope and healing. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you've never put your hope in Christ, if you've never surrendered everything to him and said, God, I can't fix what's wrong with me, only you can, and you want to accept him as your Lord and Savior for the very first time, there's no better time to do that than right now. I'll, I'll come here and be down at the front to talk to you. We're going to sing our, our hymn of response, Grace Greater Than All of Our Sin. That's the thing. It's not up to us. It's up to God's great grace, and he can do it. He can do what we can't do. Maybe you're here and you just know that you need to uh, come and pray at the altar or you want to uh, renew your dedication to the Lord or maybe you want to be baptized. You've never been baptized by immersion and in believer's baptism and you want to take that step of faith or maybe you just want to come pray at the altar. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, I encourage you to respond in your heart to the Lord of lords and the, the God of all the gods, the King of kings, as we sing grace greater than all our, our sin. Let's stand and sing.